Support for the ShakeOut podcast comes from Port San Antonio, a technology campus where nearly 4,000 new jobs in aerospace, cybersecurity, robotics, and other fields have been created in the last three years. And in collaboration with the San Antonio Museum of Science and Technology and other partners, the port will be home to a comprehensive eSports arena and innovation center in early 2022. More at techportsa.com. There's no work. There's no work. They're not income. So that's the ramen noodles. Man, I got depressed after that. I was like, oh my God, like, what am I going to do now? I went two months without a job. Hi again. I'm Paul Flav, and this is The Shakeout. Those were just a couple of voices from our first episode about how COVID's knocked tens of millions of Americans out of the workforce and into food lines. More than 10% of Texas sometimes or often doesn't have enough food to eat. I'm on my last 30 bucks. I haven't paid my rent, haven't paid my electricity. So, I mean, hopefully I want to get back to work. And I just have to say, seeing those long lines, there has got to be a better way to address this crisis. Today we take a look at a big idea to address poverty and hunger. Yeah, now is the time for universal basic income. An idea that's gained a lot of traction in the past few years and is sort of shot into the stratosphere since coronavirus began. Where the government just pays each citizen a monthly amount without eligibility requirements or promises to spend a specific way. In this episode of The Shakeout, universal basic income. How did it become the theory of the moment? And is it a silver bullet? a red herring, or something else. So let's get to it. Hey, Mike, can you, um, are you, you, you did say you were recording? Okay, I am recording now. So tell me a little bit about your recording setup right now. I'm using the state-of-the-art equipment uh, that consists of my wardrobe accumulated over the past three decades. That's so. Michael Taylor. He writes about finance for the San Antonio Express News and the Houston Chronicle. And my phone. He's going to be on a few of these episodes down the line, and I asked him to talk to me today. I keep my computer plugged in. And this is what it looks like to be doing this during the coronavirus. I'm bringing this up because the concept of work from home, who can do it, and more importantly, who can't, is a really big indicator of just how different people's experience are during COVID. That's right. As guys who write, home closet recording is a mild work inconvenience, but obviously it's much more serious for folks who work in restaurants or retail or who are just thrown out of work. According to the Economic Policy Institute, less than 10% of people in low-wage jobs can work from home. So those folks who are more likely to be black and brown are the ones whose bank accounts are draining who the threat of eviction is very real for. Yeah, exactly. More than 10 million jobs haven't come back, and childhood hunger is five times higher than it was in the 2008's Great Recession. And it's mostly affecting low-wage workers. Yeah, in many cases, low-wage earners still struggle after months of being literally barred from working. But the thing of it is, these workers were already under threat. The call center workers and food servers, warehouse workers, and retail associates have long been the target of automation. So here's why I called Mike. He's a big fan of universal basic income. What if the state covered your cost of living? Would you still go to work? Do you guys want some free money? Excuse me, would you like some free money? Everybody's talking about universal basic income or UBI. The idea that the government just pays everyone a set amount monthly. And it started rising in prominence about five to six years ago. So these reports about robots taking jobs started coming out in 2015. 
For years now, robots have gotten a bad reputation for stealing people's jobs. In 2017, McKinsey upped the number to more than a half billion jobs worldwide by 2030 could be lost. Will your next home be built by robots? So these astronomical numbers were coming out, and along with these, predictions of even larger inequality spikes. So then big tech folks like Mark Zuckerberg started embracing the concept of UBI. Now let's face it. There is something wrong with our system when I can leave here and make billions of dollars in 10 years while millions of students can't even afford to pay off their loans, let alone start a business. But it's grown since then in popularity. Even entrepreneur presidential outsider Andrew Yang pushed it as a plank of his campaign. Mr. Yang, your, your signature policy is to give every adult in the United States $1,000 a month, no questions asked. That's right. Uh, I think that's like $3.2 trillion a year. How would you do that? Sorry? How would you do that? So the idea of UBI was already growing in popularity before COVID. But does such a radical idea really have a chance right now? Well, I think because of this pandemic, it does. Because so many people are out of work through no fault of their own, even the conservative wing of the Republican Party has endorsed just giving people money. It doesn't go far enough, and it doesn't go fast enough. That's Republican Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas. And I and a lot of other senators who I've spoken to over the weekend are worried that we're not doing enough to get cash into the hands of affected workers and families quickly. So, so that's what we got, right? I mean, that $1,200 that we got what feels like a million years ago. Uh, and they've been floating the idea of another one for months. That's right. That's what we would call an unconditional cash transfer. And it's the largest example in the United States of ever doing this in response to a recession. And I think it's a good start. I like that it was unconditional. Like you, Paul, didn't have to prove you're going to spend it on housing or food or something responsible. It was just, I trust Paul will make good use of this money. And that is a radical change. It is not the way we think about or generally do welfare in the United States. And I think we need to take that idea and we need to make it monthly. I mean, really, you're just talking about your gut feeling. But do you have any proof? We do have proof. That's the funny thing. This has been one of the more proven concepts. To a large extent, you know, the effects of cash are and the ways it works and doesn't work are mostly known. And that's Joe Houston. His organization, Give Directly, has been studying both unconditional cash transfers and universal basic income. And they continue to study it by giving out cash to communities. And they've even done work in Texas. Harvey hit Texas with Old Testament wrath. But it left widespread devastation in its way. We're still struggling to fully comprehend its aftermath. So Give Directly helped with the Hurricane Harvey disaster with their first test of unconditional cash transfers in the United States. And they did it in three neighborhoods in Houston in a town just north of Houston called Rose City. I have a two-story home, and it was up to the second floor in my home. Bonnie Stevenson was and is the mayor of Rose City. It took 10 days for the water to finally drain from the town. And then we had people that come back that would have to sleep in tents out on the ground, you know, until they got uh, a place to live. Uh, FEMA come in and, and maybe gave them a trailer. But that wasn't an easy deal to get done either, you know. You didn't get it overnight, that was for sure. So the Red Cross, or a traditional charity, gives stuff like water or food, or blankets, or all the things that Red Cross delivers in their giant trucks and in their big tents. And that helps. But things go wrong, right? Like the time the Red Cross brought food, but it was just pallets of black beans, or the time with the hot dogs. I said, what you got today? He said, well, got hot dogs. 
I said, well, that's not too bad. That sounds pretty good. He said, only one problem. I said, what's that? He said, somebody forgot to put the buns on the truck. But Give Directly just gives money directly. We targeted homes that were hard hit by the hurricane. That's Joe Houston with Give Directly again. And we're in areas with sort of low income levels, you know, even pre-hurricane, and passed out $1,500 debit cards. What people often need is the ability to figure this out on their own. And Stevenson says that's what cash did. Yeah, that was that was wonderful because people had different needs. Somebody might have needed it to buy food. Somebody else might have needed it to buy clothes. Somebody else needed, needed it to just pay for some place to stay. But do we know what the outcomes were for people who got the cash versus people that didn't in terms of their recovery? We don't know how they compare to those that didn't get the money, but GiveDirectly did do some surveys after the fact, and more than half reported experiencing less stress because of the cash assistance, and it helped half avoid debt, and about 44% move back home. So while there are things we don't know, it is clear that unconditional cash transfers can play a role in disaster relief. So that's off just one investment, but do we know kind of more about what UBI would have, like what impact it would have in this scenario, or for low-income people? Well, it is funny you ask because there are two studies that just concluded in the past few months. One was from Give Directly, and it showed that their UBI program in Kenya has helped people weather the storm of the COVID outbreak. Recipients were 10% less likely to experience hunger, and mental health problems and well-being saw big gains. And then across their studies, they find that the money doesn't mean people stop working. It has no effect on how much people work. Again, Joe Houston with Give Directly. That in some cases, people work more. In most cases, people work the same amount. Uh, In the developed world, uh, it seems like the evidence is people work a little bit less, but maybe in groups that you might want to work a little bit less, uh, parents of young children, uh, young people who end up going to school more, things like that. And the Finnish government found a similar result in their UBI experiment. For two years, a volunteer group of unemployed Finns took a set amount of money per month rather than other social spending. The recipients didn't work more, but they experienced far less stress and were happier. Okay, so uh, let's uh, put aside the fact that I think this is magic, hokum, uh, and and put, at the very least, this into the context of the U.S. political system, which is ground to a halt on even feeding the SNAP program that feeds people, you know, even giving people money in food stamp form that they can use like a, a credit card in the grocery store. But you're saying somehow that what I would describe as a radical redistribution of, of wealth is somehow going to pass muster with both houses of Congress? I can, all I can point to there is the obvious giant elephant in the budget, which is that, in fact, Social Security is a universal basic income. We have a universal basic income for the elderly via Social Security. And, uh, you know, every now and then there's a debate about whether or not we want to cut that or change that. But mostly that's a a pretty popular program on both sides of the aisle. And uh, I think at this point feels like a a true entitlement or, or a right to people. And it works. And it's incredibly popular. And it's not going away. And it is keeping... Uh, grandma and and granddad from poverty in their old age. And I think we need to expand it. And we need to expand it as a result of COVID. When we come back, we look at a program that shows UBI and its ilk can have big unintended consequences. We look at the biggest example in the world of government just giving away cash. It's robust, well-documented, It's way up north in Alaska. Way 
and four decades later, it's still controversial. And so what's happened was an idea that seemed like a good idea ended up being something that destroyed the state that I loved. I'm Paul Flav, and this is The Shakeout. Welcome back. Before the break, financial columnist for Hearst Corporation Michael Taylor was going gaga for universal basic income. Yeah, gaga is a little strong, but yes, in this moment and in this crisis, there is a well-studied solution and universal basic income is it. No, I admit, I, I think there's a lot more research out there on UBI than I had thought. But I did want to talk about a program that's been going on for 38 years and it's been doling out cash to the citizens of our northernmost state, Alaska. It's called the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend. It's the longest-running unconditional cash transfer program in the world. That's Masin Gatabi. He's an economist and professor at the University of Alaska Anchorage. To be clear, the Alaska Permanent Fund Dividend, people don't need to do anything to get it. It just shows up once a year. That's right. You can be a senior citizen or a baby. You can be poor, rich. It does not matter. And people seem to love it. So, so far, so good. And Katabi says this program is almost always the one that gets brought up when people talk about universal basic income. It's not a universal basic income. It's not big enough, but it is an unconditional cash transfer. When we think about implementation of universal basic income or we think about uh, should we be giving people money in order to deal with recessions or in order to deal with potential automation, there really are not that many examples uh, from around the world from which we can draw. But as you'll hear, the dividend, or as Alaskans call it, simply the PFD, has grown and evolved into the center of the political universe there. On every other day, there is some article that touches on some element of the PFD in just about every paper uh, across the state. We'll hear more from him later, but first we need some history. The year was 1976. The shirt collars were big, the dance moves were groovy. Steve Miller Band wrote this song about violent killers who robbed a guy. This is a story about Billy Joe. But more importantly for our story, the then world's largest privately funded construction project had enlisted tens of thousands of men and women to build a four-foot diameter steel pipeline across 800 miles of wild Alaskan landscape. That's about the distance from San Antonio to Kansas City, or for non-Texans from New York to Chicago. The pipeline would deliver oil from the North Slope's Prudhoe Bay to a terminal in Valdez. The permanent fund was set up that year to ensure the state didn't fritter away all those tax dollars. The pipeline would make the state billions. Well, don't you mean it would make oil companies billions? Yeah, them too. But unlike any other state, oil companies don't own what's under the ground in Alaska. And neither do the people that owned the property. Since before it was even a state, the decision was made that natural resources could only be leased. They belong to everyone, not just to individuals. So the permanent fund holds on to the money from oil taxes and invests it. 
the hope for many is that it would be used to help government develop the state and plan for a time when it didn't have oil. This puts Alaska in the enviable position of deciding how to spend all this money. But in 1980, the state had millions of dollars flowing into its coffers in a way that it never had. Within a few years, the frontier state was flush with cash. Improving the roads around here. I think we should save some of it and give some of it back to the people. Here's a documentary made in 1980 called In Oil We Trust, looking at what the state should do. It doesn't matter what they're going to spend it on, they're going to find something. Some in the legislature wanted to sock more away. Others wanted to eliminate the state income tax. Still others wanted to share the profits with everyday Alaskans. Things are changing here in Alaska, and everybody knows you can't stop change. So what did they do? In 1980, the state did eliminate the income tax. And the story goes that Governor Jay Hammond, wanting to protect the fund from being looted and spent, decided to give out a dividend from the fund's annual profits to protect it. Jay Hammond. All of a sudden, a man running for political office is actually talking about the things that are really important to us. And what that did, what he thought it would do, was create a constituency that would protect it from ever being spent. Well, it must have worked since the fund is tens of billions of dollars now. Yeah, it's a huge fund. But there's a lot of people who think the dividend is driving the state's economy into the ground. Expat Alaskan Charles Wolforth has become one of the dividend's biggest critics. Uh, my family moved to Alaska when I was three years old in uh, 1966. And he watched the fun grow from the beginning. Uh, I grew up there and uh, worked as a journalist, worked as a political consultant, and ran a nonprofit for educational equity, ran for and held office in the Anchorage Assembly. So it's fair to say he's plugged in on the issue. Yeah, very fair. Wolforth actually received one of the first dividends. He was 17 years old. I felt uh, very funny about getting my first PFD check. I, I, it made me uncomfortable. But speaking as someone who lived in Alaska at one time and collected the permanent fund dividend, he, like I, got over that discomfort real quick. I guess you get used to anything, and, and it also helped pay for my four kids to go to college. So over time, Wolforth became a big supporter. I was a proponent, and I've written in, in media and in scholarly settings about the value of the permanent fund dividend to reduce income inequality. That it so I want to know, what has the impact been on people living there? Well, that's complicated, but going to the research, it does appear that the program reduces poverty. The poverty rate would be considerably higher in the absence of, of the PFD. Gatabi's research in particular shows it reduces childhood obesity, that it doesn't impact crime, and that it doesn't really affect employment. If anything, low-income moms with kids work slightly less. I don't know. That all sounds pretty good to me. Are you seeding the field on this idea, Paul? Am I winning? Not at all, because a couple things are pretty clear. Because the PFD doesn't impact people's ability to access other federal relief programs like SNAP and WIC and housing assistance, this is actually an add-on, not a replacement. And more importantly is the way the state has evolved around this dividend. The permanent fund itself is this vast sum of $60 billion that could make Alaska's future very bright and very easy. And instead, it's become something that just pays out a free giveaway while the state declines and you know the public services that would give it a good future are starved. And so what's happened was an idea that seemed like a good idea ended up being something that destroyed the state that I loved. It's interesting to hear somebody who had a view of a unconditional cash transfer 
for a certain number of years and then suddenly switches because either he's changed or the nature of the the dividend has changed. And I'm interested to figure out which one it is. The biggest thing is that the state has sort of been in free fall for the last six years. So oil declining sharply at the start of play today. $1.72 a gallon. I don't see a downside. Feels great. I don't see the dynamics. I don't understand what it's, what, what's going to bring it back up. The price of oil fell from over $100 to around 60 at the end of the year, and it kept falling. And oil is pretty important in the state. Alaska does not have an income tax, does not have a sales tax. So historically, Alaska has relied basically solely on uh, the severance tax on oil revenues. Between 2005 and 2014, 90% of the unrestricted general fund revenues were coming directly from oil. So when oil prices went from over $100 to below $40 in 2015, that just created this massive gap in the, the budget, which had to be filled somehow. And like Alaskan economist Musin Gatabi said, those small oil revenues led to big Alaska budget problems. Here's Charles Wolfworth. The budget was at times 80, 85 percent in deficit. So in other words, they had like 15 to 20 percent of the money they needed to cover the deficit. The state had a rainy day fund that it could tap, but they also had to make some cuts and one very controversial move made by the governor. Bill Walker wanted to reduce the dividend to avoid a financial meltdown. The result was that, yeah, he did that, but he was also voted out of office in 2018. You know, he was kicked out of office and somebody was elected who promised to you know, vastly increase the dividend, even though that was not possible. Since then, the state has made deep cuts to its university system, to K-12 education, to social spending, and its rainy day fund is running low. Meanwhile, the PFD is still being paid out in full. Yeah, the, the permanent fund dividend is now the largest single expenditure of the state of Alaska. Everything else has been very has been cut very deeply. And according to Wolforth, the debate around the dividend has really become the most important thing to politicians. The fault line in politics has become are you you know, are you for the dividend and how much? You know, how much do you want the dividend to be? And now with the pandemic, Alaska's in an even bigger bind because not only did oil prices plummet, but tourism, hospitality, fishing have all taken a hit because the state instituted a two-week quarantine for visitors. And that includes workers and their processing plants. And so even though they may not be able to afford government services and may need to even go into the permanent funds principle to start taking from the investment that feeds the profit that goes to these checks, they still may continue to fully fund the dividend. If it's your last dollar, would you rather that last dollar go towards Medicaid? Or would you rather it go towards university? Or would you rather it be distributed towards the dividend? And those questions had just never been asked before. And the message to, to some degree from voters is don't touch our permanent fund dividend checks. This is a program that once you start it, it has a life of its own. And the unintended consequences are huge and they can't, they're out of your control because essentially you're bribing the people who vote. And if you ch you're changing the basic functioning of democracy, you can't just change it back because the people who would change it back are the ones who are being bribed. The Alaska Permanent Fund example is a pretty sobering warning about how these programs are crafted and delivered. 
Like if people start seeing that the government's main purpose is just send them money rather than do infrastructure or education or public safety, that can really warp the system. Yeah, I agree. And as in Alaska, it really connects the public to an industry in a way that few things can. So what does that mean? Well, I mean that the permanent fund, it's, it's $60 billion invested across the financial markets, but everyone still thinks of it as oil money. And their fates or the fates of their checks are linked to that industry, they think. So people don't do much to upset oil companies, even when it could cost them long term. So looking at the U.S. and say we raise money for these programs by like taxing big tech or social media, people may not want to upset like the monopoly power of Facebook or Amazon, Google or even like AT&T, even when economics tells us we're ultimately losing money on the deal. Exactly. So all of this is to say that UBI is still worthy of more study as cash transfers can help in disasters. And I still think UBI is a way to go, even if the system that frames it or delivers it needs more thought. Yeah, I mean, I'm open to that. And by the way, speaking of open, I now have a cat outside my door. Can I climb out of my closet now? That's fine. Talk to you next time. On the next episode of The Shakeout, we take a long look at the travel industry. It encompasses land, air, and sea, and because of COVID, it's basically failing in all of them. We saw declines of 80 plus percent for some airlines, uh, which translates into drops in revenue in the billions. Expect that episode out in about a month. Check out the long story we published on hunger in Texas on our website at tpr.org. I want to thank Michael Taylor from HERS for helping us out on this episode. We'll hear from him again in travel. We had production assistance from Ben Henry. This was edited by Kitty Isley and overseen by news director Dan Katz. This is a production of Texas Public Radio, which is stewarded by CEO Joyce Slocum. I'm Paul Flav. Thanks for listening.